0: Well, we continue our series, Back to School, and how many of you are glad that we're back to school? Two or three of you, that's good. Parents are like, yes. Students are like, eh, you know, but you get to see your friends, and so you get back to school and you start learning the foundational things again, right? So one plus one equals four, that's good. That's the grains for you. That's uh this area, yeah. So uh you're going to have problems, When you get to chemistry and physics and algebra, if you think one plus one equals four, that's going to be a problem. And uh, this is what we're talking about this morning is foundational truths, and that you need to know the foundation of what it means to be a Christian, and that when someone asks you that question of what does it mean to be a Christian, why do you get up on a Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon and go to church uh, to gather with other Christians, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because if one plus one equals four in your faith, then that means that you're off the foundation and you're missing something and you're going to be going in the wrong direction. And so this morning, that's the foundational question we're going to be dealing with is what does it mean to be a Christian? So one plus one equals two, as we know. There's an A, there's a B, there's a C and a whole bunch of other letters and ain't ain't a word, right? And so all of these different foundational things that we have that are necessary for us to continue to grow. Now, I truly believe that everything we need to know, we learn in kindergarten. Right? You learn how to socialize. You learn how to begin to where the food line is at. You learn that if there's a rope with little handles, you all get in line together. All the little things that are, that are necessary for socialization and beginning to do life, you learn in kindergarten and kind of build upon those things. But This morning we're going to dig into this question of what does it mean to be a Christian and to set a solid foundation for us. For it doesn't make any sense for us to learn all this great theology if we don't have the central core truth of the foundation of what it means to be a Christian solidified in your life and in your heart and in your mind. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. He sets a foundation for us. He uses building terms for us to kind of grasp this idea of that he is the foundation of Christianity. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and following, if you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, we'll have it on the screen. Or if you like technology, open up your, your phone to version and pull that up or whatever um, app that you're using. But Matthew chapter 7. Verse 24 and following, Jesus is talking to his disciples and a group of people, and they've asked him some questions, and basically, what does it mean to be a Christian? And so here is his answer. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is like a wise person who builds his house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. In other words, Jesus sets the foundation for us and says the foundation is himself. He's saying, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the foundation for Christianity is me. And if you build your house upon me, you build your life and faith upon me, it will not shake because storms are going to come. Life will happen and storms will come. But if you build your life upon a solid foundation, which is myself, then you will be able to withstand those storms. It may move, it may shake, it may feel like the house is going to crumble, but if it's built upon a solid foundation, it will not fall apart. Look at the next verse, 26. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Now, some of you, you've been to the beach, and you've built these wonderful contraptions called sand castles and houses, and you build them up, and some of them are just phenomenal, and you could even, some of them now, they build them so big, you can actually live in them for a little bit, but it would be foolish for us to go to that sandcastle house and say, you know what, I love the look of that house, here's $300,000, and and to, to buy it and to move into it, and you'd start seeing people move furniture in, and you'd be like, that's ridiculous, because that house is going to fall pretty quickly. As a matter of fact, for most of us, we realize that a four-year-old could come by with a sand bucket and destroy that $300,000 $300, sand house. And so we were like, no, we don't want any part to do with that. And so Jesus is drawing this illustration for us as, that as ridiculous as it sounds for us to spend a whole lot of money investing in a sandcastle house that will quickly go away to build our life on a sandcastle Faith of something that's going to move and it's going to shake and it's going to go away when life storms happen That's how ridiculous it would be to build our life on that So the foundation of what does it mean to be a christian is found in the life and in the person Of jesus christ that he is the foundation that all throughout the old testament all throughout the new testament everything points To the person and the work of jesus christ So one of the other places we're going to spend some time is in the book of Romans. And Paul talks a lot about in Romans about who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian there. But before we get there, I want to ask you this question. How many of you are perfect? A couple of you. That's good. Okay. We'll have your parents or somebody, your spouse, talk to you a little bit later over lunch about not being perfect. But none of us are perfect, right? I mean, if you go to Exodus chapter 20 and you look at the Ten Commandments, all of us have fallen short in some way, in some capacity, and and don't make the bullseye of perfection ever, much less just one time. And so if you look at Exodus chapter 20, how many of you have misused God's name? Don't raise your hand. Okay, But we've all at some point, I think many have misused God's name. Some, maybe you've uh, not rested on Sabbath. You've chosen to work or you've chosen to do other things. And so that is actually a commandment for us is to find a day to Sabbath, to rest, to recreate. Maybe some have not honored their mom or dad. I know none in this room that would be the case. But some of you, maybe you have not honored your mom and dad appropriately. That is falling short of God's standard of perfection. Now, some of you maybe have stolen. Anybody have ever stolen? You keep that to yourself. But if you've taken something from someone else, even if it was a pencil from the teacher that you forgot to give back, that's actually stealing. Okay? So stealing, some of you, again, no one in this room has lied. But lying, if your fish was this big and became this big, all right, that's a lie. That's manufacturing. And why would we even do that? Because we want people to think that we are better than what we are. In that moment, this innate desire to be like God tricks us into thinking and believing that if my fish goes from here to here, people will in some way worship me and think better of me. That is falling short of God's standard. And none of you have ever seen someone else's car or house or truck or whatever and envied or coveted, right? said, man. My life would be complete if I had that vehicle or if I had that iPad or that iPhone or that whatever it may be for you. You see that and you're envious and you covet it and you want it. And and people do that and we do it and we reach out for it and we grab it and it's just like a mist that we think that it's going to satisfy. And as soon as we grab it, we realize that it's gone away, that it doesn't satisfy. So Jesus is saying to us that the only thing that satisfies, the thing to build your life upon is him and himself alone. He's the foundation of life and he's the purpose and meaning of life. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 where Jesus says to us, all of these sins equal what? You are dead because of your disobedience and many sins. How much life comes out of a dead person? You can answer, none. Yes, this is not a trick question. How much life comes out of a dead person? All right, let's try that again, okay? How much life comes out of a dead person? All right, I thought maybe I was going to have to run around doing CPR in here because we have a lot of dead people. No life comes out of a dead person. So what Jesus is telling us is one time of not meeting God's standard through Exodus, that that one time that we mess up and don't hit perfection, that one time that we lie, that one time that we envy, the one time that we covet, in that moment we are no longer like God and we can never then achieve perfection. Because once you're not perfect, you can't then reachieve something like perfection. It's gone forever. And so because of that, we are now dead in our sins that we need to be brought back to life to experience life. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead because of your sins. So what does it mean to be a Christian then? If we're dead and we've all messed up and Jesus is the foundation, what does it mean to be a Christian? The first thing is that we have to admit that we have a problem. We have a sin problem. We have a problem with sin. None of us are going to be perfect. None of us, every time we pull back the arrow and try to hit the bullseye, it's always going to fall short. And where did that start? You see the apple in the very beginning in the garden. Adam and Eve messed up because in that moment, what? Why did they eat the apple? Because they wanted to become like God. And from Adam and Eve forward, all of us have been in pursuit to be like God. We want to be worshiped. We want to be in control of our own life and our own agenda. So that's been the process all throughout. So we need to admit and just say, hey, listen, I want to be like God. There are times where I want to be like God and I want to be in control of my own life, my own agenda. And that's just what we're pursuing. Romans chapter three, twenty-three, says it this way. For everyone has sinned. How many have sinned? So everyone has missed the bullseye. At some point, everyone has missed the bullseye. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And his standard is perfection. So in other words, to enter into heaven, to be and spend life with him for all eternity, means that you have to live life in perfection. And so if you haven't done that, then you fall short of that glorious standard. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin, so all those times that you do stuff and you fall short, you're working, you're earning an, a wage. So the wages of sin is death. And how much life is in dead people? None. None. So you're working and you're working and you're working and all your sins are getting you is more death. You're not earning anything. It's, it's totally against, it's going against life. So the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's a dead person and they're working and they're working and they're working. And all of the wages that they're getting is just earning them more death. Because our perfection, we're shooting for something we can never meet. Look at Romans three nine. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews, now this is religious people, religious people are better than others. So if you've been around church for a little bit, you understand that, hey, it's real easy to clean up. It's real easy to answer the right questions, to give the right answers and, and do this and look religious. And so here Paul is saying, look, you, you can get religious and pretend that you're better than other people. But no, not at all, for we have all shown that, we, that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether you're righteous, whether you've grown up in church or not, everyone is under the power of sin. So here Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you've grown up in church. It doesn't even matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you can check off all this stuff. It doesn't even matter if you can recite the Ten Commandments from memory. None of that matters. All of us have a problem with sin. We then look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God, this is what I call the big butt syndrome, okay? There's always this, here's this deal, and then there's a problem, and then God does this little thing, and he goes, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, while we're still walking in this direction because we see the apple and we think, I can just do it. If I can just grab this apple this time, I will. this will be the thing that will grant me what I think will give me satisfaction and purpose and meaning. We continue to grasp for it every time we take a bite, and it never satisfies. So while we're still pursuing this, God's plan was understanding that, hey, these humans are going to keep pursuing this until they get an opportunity to receive another sacrifice, that they see and understand that that will never fulfill for them. And so Jesus, of the big but over here, God gave us, while we were still enemies, he gave us an opportunity to have life over here. We must admit that we have a problem, and that problem is sin. And until we put that in proper perspective that God is God and we're not, we're going to struggle. But the beautiful thing is, but... God had a plan. What's that plan? The first thing is that we need to believe. In Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we see that God has this wonderful thing. Abraham was. Now, if you've been around church for a little bit, you understand that Abraham was a very religious person. He knew everything about God. He was close to God. And here's what we find out. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. In other words, Jews are there because of Abraham. As a matter of fact, even Islam is, they would say, Abraham is the father of Islam. What did we discover about being made right with God? So if there was ever a guy who was religious and met all of the qualifications for being religious, it was Abraham. But even he could not fulfill this idea of perfection. So if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about but that was not God's way. Next part of that. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness because of his faith. Now, this is the part that I want you to get. This is the good news. So at the cross, there is equal ground. So it doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't even matter your religious education at the cross. The thing that makes it Equal, the good news is that only through Christ, belief in Him, and faith in Him, can you have credited righteousness. So think of it this way you have an account book, and the God's up there, and He's got your little account, and you're standing before Him, and He looks at Abraham's account book, and He's like, Ooh, Abraham, He was very righteous. He was willing to sacrifice His son for me. And all these different things that He did right, all of those things still didn't equal an opportunity for Him to enter into heaven and have a life eternal life with god the father the only thing that accredited his account and made it equal totally redeemed and full account was that he had righteousness credited to him by his faith that he believed in the messiah to come and the same thing is true for us. When our account book, we're doing all of these good things and we count up all this different stuff and we think, man, if I just do this much good work, it's going to get me this much closer. And what God is saying to us is, listen, you can do all the good things you can possibly do and your good works will never equal enough to get credited enough righteousness to, to pass the account book that God is checking his accounts against. That the only way that that can happen, that your account can be paid in full is through the person of Jesus Christ and believing in him and confessing that what he did on the cross covers over all of your works in the accounts in your book. Even John 3.16, a verse that you see, maybe we used to see, put up at sporting events. For this, this is how God loved the world, that he loved the world so much. What did he do? He gave his one and only son. As a matter of fact, some of you even wear shirts here that says the hashtag love us. It's taken from this verse. That God loved us so much that he gave the most precious gift that he could possibly give, which was his son as a substitute for ourselves, and that his son died on the cross in our place and substituted so that we could have come from a dead person to a live person. Because Jesus is the only person that went through life perfectly, saw the apple, was tempted by it, right? But chose not to eat it. And so because of that, as the Son of God, He qualified to stand in our place. That's why in the moment on the cross, whenever God, at the very moment, right before He died, all of our sins, everyone's sins was upon the Son. And in that moment, God had to turn His back because He couldn't look upon the weight and the nastiness and the ugliness of our sin. And in that moment, there was the one moment of separation between God the Father and God the Son. And that is the thing that Jesus didn't want the most. Whenever he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was literally, the blood was coming out because he was sweating blood because of this, the necessity of just this what was going to be happening. And that he wasn't scared necessarily about the physical death, but the fact that there was going to be a moment in time where he would not be in perfect fellowship with the father all so that you and i could confess with our mouth and believe in our heart and had come from a dead person to a live person ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 god saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this it's a gift from god One of the things I love about sports is somebody will do something, especially in football, one of my favorite sports, somebody will do something, and what do they do whenever they do it? They're like, me, right? And so in that moment, they forget that there's 10 other guys on the team that actually helped them do that. Right, And so they forget in that moment, hey, I've scored a touchdown or I made a tackle or whatever. And they forget that there were 10 other guys that opened up the hole so they could score. or There was a quarterback that threw the pass or all this different stuff. And we forget that others are part of it and we want to take credit for it. That is a part of us wanting to be God in that moment and say, look at me, look what I've achieved. And God is saying, you can never stand before me and go, hey, God, it's Chris. You're welcome. But we do it And god says listen Salvation Is totally upon faith and belief. And your works are like the best works you could ever do are like dirty rags Before me that would for you to be and to spend eternity with me and enjoy the beautiful fellowship that you can experience with me You can never say (laughs) It's your pleasure god God says "No, no no It's your pleasure It's my pleasure to have given my son so that you can experience being in fellowship with me, experience what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to experience what it would mean to not to come from physical death, from spiritual death to be brought to newness of life. What does it mean to believe? It means that in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, that we recognize that I've reached for the apple over and over and over again, and it has never satisfied. And so that we admit that I am not God, I can never be God, and believe and understand in your heart that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient once and for all to cover over all of your mistakes. That the things that you've done in your past, as horrible as they may have been, that they're forgiven. The things that you're going to do in the future, as horrible as they might be, that they are forgiven in Christ belief in, and understanding that there's no way that you can stand before God and say, God, accept me because I've done one more right thing than I've done bad. God says it doesn't work that way. I don't work on scales. I've given the greatest gift. One of the things we enjoy about Christmas, isn't it, is that we've asked for something and you get it and you open it up and you play with it. And you're like, yes, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so you're, you're there and you're enjoying it and you're taking it. And then what do you do? After a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, it goes into the back of your closet and you've forgotten that you ever received it. Some of you, we do that with technology. We get these wonderful things called computers. And we know how to send email but not do all the other things that this powerful machine can do. We never experience the fullness of what it would mean to truly understand and know the computer or the iPhone or whatever you've got in front of you. We never fully experience the fullness of the gift. And so sometimes we get dissatisfied with the gift that we receive from God, and it's not that the gift is insufficient, it's our understanding of the gift. And so that as we grow in our faith and as we begin to believe and begin to trust, the more that we understand about who God is and what he's about, we become not just satisfied with it, but we enjoy it and we relish it. And we begin to understand the fullness of what the gift is all about. And then you get the full life that God's talking about. You read in Scripture that, that God has come to give us a fullness of life. And for so many of us, we think of, man, here's these little boundaries that God puts around us. And he says, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. And you should do this, but not that. And, and you've got all these rules in front of you. And what God is saying, listen, I've given you a gift. Explore the gift of Jesus. He is more than enough. But we're always just in our humanity. We're always looking at the apple. We're always being distracted by other things. And God's saying, listen, I've placed the most beautiful gift before you. Not just believe in it, but live in it and experience it to its fullness. Admit that you're not God. Admit that you can never achieve it on your own and believe. And then finally, just one of the things we do around here quite a bit is confess. The church is to be a confessing church. In Romans chapter 10, 9 and following, it tells us, that we're to be a confessing church. And so here at Crosspoint, one of the things we do quite a bit is baptism. And in that baptism, that is a personal confession. That's you saying, hey, I am a follower of Jesus. I confess in him. So what does it tell us? Paul tells us, if you openly declare or confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Think of it this way, that you're out in the middle of an ocean and you're drowning and you're trying for everything that you've got, and a lifeboat comes by. What are you going to do when the lifeboat comes by? You are openly going to confess you need help. Right? If a lifeboat comes by, you're not going to go, "Mm, I don't know if that one's going to be quite big enough. Does it have enough TVs on it? I mean, you're not going to be going through that whole process, right? You're going to be like, no, I am in need of saving. And so the lifeboat comes by, and you're going to openly confess, declare, and you're going to believe in your heart that that is going to get you to safety. But we do this. As ridiculous as that sounds, we do this. We see we're in a place of distress, and we need saving. And we're like, "Mm, I don't know if I can believe this part, or I don't know if I want. You know, some say you have to give up drinking or he can't dance or, you know, all these different things that we go through. And listen, it's about Jesus. And here at Crosspoint, that's one of the things that we're continually talking about. Let's throw all that other stuff that you've learned that's religious. Some of that stuff is valuable, but if it's not about Jesus, then let's throw that out. If you need to be saved, you're going to openly declare and you're going to believe in your heart that that lifeboat, it may look dinky, but it is going to be sufficient enough to get you to safety. For some of us, we need to be reminded of that that we've been religious and churchy for so long, we think that we're the lifeboat and that we've done the saving, we've cleaned up. And Jesus is like, look, you're still not that far away from being in the middle of the ocean, just waiting and waiting and waiting till the moment that the lifeboat comes by and you're distressed and you call out, my life, I cannot do this on my own anymore to publicly declare and to believe in your heart so that you may be saved and brought from death to life. The next part. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and is openly declaring your faith that you are saved. I know these are old words. Some of them are old words that you don't hear in church even that much. But this idea of being saved is being pulled out from something that you cannot do on your own. And that God literally reaches over the lifeboat and pulls you out and pulls you in. And it's you're at the end of your own strength. I don't know if you've ever swam that hard and that far and that long in open water. But you get to a point where you can swim no longer and you can barely hold on to anything. And so the power is not even in you. But the the Savior literally reaches over the lifeboat and pulls you in and brings you to safety. And then rows you to refuge. And builds the new foundation so that you can begin to live life to its full. He's brought you from death to life. If you've ever spoken to anyone that's been in a near-death experience, they'll always tell you, I take every moment by moment by moment. I take nothing for granted because I was this close to not having life. I was this close to not having breath. Admit, believe, believe confess. Some of you have been followers of Jesus for a long time, and it's easy to forget. So I just want to remind you, John chapter 14, verse 15, our journey as followers of Jesus is to continually be reminded of how much we love is shown in the way that we love others around us. Again, here at Crosspoint, we talk about pointing people to Jesus, and one of the ways that we do that is by the way that we show love. For God so loved the world that he gave extravagantly so as we grow in our faith and understand the wealth of the gift that we've been given it doesn't keep the gift to ourselves but we actually want other people to experience the gift with us and so we become more extravagant with the gift that we've been given hey look look, look at this look at what god has given me and so as we continue to grow in our understanding of the gift we've been given we want to share it with other people and that's what this is if you love me Everywhere you go, you're gonna be like, man, have you seen this? Have you seen this about Jesus? Wow, man, th- th- this this is about Jesus. This this totally changed. This totally changed me. This right here, I, I I don't need this anymore because this is what I understand about the gift of what Jesus has given me. And so, if God is God, then He's inexhaustible, and we can never reach the fullness of who He is. For some reason, we just. Say, thanks for pulling me in the lifeboat and getting me to refuge. And we just set them aside and keep going on. And every once in a while, life will get hard. And we'll remember it and we'll run back over. And we'll be like, oh, yeah. We'll spend a little bit of time. And Jesus is like, listen, know the gift experience the gift to the fullness. Quit playing church. Quit playing Christianity. Get engulfed in the way that you were drowning in your own sin. Now the waves of who God is can overwhelm you and relish in that, bathe in that, and be at that point of like, God, I don't even understand this, but I want to experience the fullness of your gift as much as I experience the fullness of my sin. Love me. Show my neighbors. Show them just a little bit more about who Jesus is. I guarantee you, your neighbors, they want to know this Jesus. They want to see what he's doing in your life. And they want you to be able to say, This is what Jesus is doing. I know I'm not I'm not perfect, I haven't arrived, but here's what he's doing. I'm financially free, I'm not addicted. Start naming off the things that you find through the gift of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, this is so simple. The good news of Jesus, many have said it's too simple. That why would the God of the universe allow salvation, life eternal, presence before the king of kings, presence before the creator of the universe. Why would he allow it to be so simple? To just confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. it's our misunderstanding of the simplicity that trips us up. That because it's simple, because everyone has to do the same thing, that makes it good news. You were the God of equality before equality was the cool word. You were the God of unity before unity was even fully understood. Father, you were the God of the human race before we dispersed ourselves. Father, all of it comes back to the equal footing of the cross. So, Father, this morning, if there's someone here that hasn't confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart, we're just going to pray together. Jesus, I confess that I have tried to be God in my own life, and I admit that I have a sin problem, and I confess that Your Son's death on the cross covers my sin problem, and I believe that I can have new life. That you can raise me from the dead through what your son Jesus did on the cross for me. I receive the gift of Jesus this morning. Father, I want to know that gift. I want to open that gift. I want to experience the fullness of that gift. And know that from this day forward for a lifetime, it's about me understanding and experiencing the gift that you've given in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, that I want to love you and to show other people how you, the greatest gift, are changing me, transforming my heart, my mind, my appetites, my eyesight. The things that I see, the things that I hear, the things that I want are transformed because of this gift in the person of Jesus Christ. For those that have said yes to Jesus maybe weeks, months, even years ago, that it's so easy to get caught up in doing the church, religious, culture thing that we forget that it's simply Jesus. That it's not the clothes we wear, it's not the things that we don't do or the things that we do as much as it is about, it is about the person of Jesus and the work that he did upon the cross and the work that he's wanting and has done in our heart. And then maybe even some of the things that we've lost an appetite for in the past that maybe we've regained an appetite and we're discouraged by that is because we've lost touch with the gift. We've put it in a closet. We've hidden it away. We forgot of its significance and importance. It's, just a, it's not a season for Jesus, whatever that is. So Father, may we just bring out that gift and just re-engage with you. In your son's name that we pray. Amen. As followers of Jesus, one of the things that whenever God touches our hearts and changes us in the, the eastern way of thinking, that whenever it says your heart is transformed, that also your heart and your mind and your eyes, your total inner being, are interconnected. And so when you say yes to Jesus, it says, you know, you're receiving a new heart. But one of the things about that is that it, is your new heart is brought to life it changes your appetites and it moves your will it literally motivates you to do and to be and to see differently so you do have different appetites you see people differently you see opportunities differently and that's why whenever Jesus says if you love me you will obey me it's that inner gift of a new heart that transforms your eyes and your heart and your motives and your agenda and that's what he's saying, for us to move forward in that. May we be a church that points people to Jesus. And we're doing that because people are saying, man, those people are sharing the gift of love does differently than I've ever experienced before. That's how the new church, the New Testament church, exploded because of the way that the people loved one another and loved in the community. Let that be said about us.